Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Right now, we will start off talking to Frank. Good morning, Frank. Morning, Bob. How are you? Oh, just getting off the day off to a good start. It's supposed to be a just another beautiful January day, so uh, <laughs> it's going to be fun getting out in it. That's true. Hey, um, got uh, a gustrum that was brought into Hill Country Ranch that uh, has gotten uh, has sort of taken over, and uh, it's right along the creek. And I'm wondering, uh, can it be? Didn't can can we get rid of it? Uh, you can. It's a little tough. What we're talking about, of course, is a Japanese ligustrum. And I tell you one thing I would be doing at this time of year, and that is cutting down everything that's got the berries on it because the Jap ligustrum that I've seen around is just, you know, absolutely loaded up with berries. And, uh, it's just going to be a, a, you know, a, a tremendous re-sprouting of additional plants this spring. So I begin by cutting it down and grinding it or do something to, uh, just to get rid of all the berries that are coming up. As far as getting rid of the big plants, uh, if you were to, you know, guess, do you have, uh, 20, 50, 100, or a, just a huge number up and down that area? Just a huge number that couldn't even be counted. Okay. Um, it's, you know, it, it's going to basically begin with just physical removal. Just cut them down as low to the ground as you can and, uh, you know, get get rid of the tops. They will re-sprout, and there are a couple of different ways to go about doing it. You can uh, you can either just go back and physically shred them down, mow them down, do whatever. Uh, after four or five times, they will start dying out. The other thing that you can do, and this is kind of a community project, but uh, save old, um, you know, metal cans, uh, the kind, gosh, things that are four or five inches in diameter that have one end cut out of them you can go through where you've cut things off and literally put that down over the top and uh or you can cover the ground with some sort of weed block you could use uh you know a bunch of layers of newspaper whatever to just suppress those sprouts as they're trying to come out especially since it's long uh, along a creek bed um, you just, you absolutely do not want to use any of the chemical brush killers, the, uh, oh, all these different Roundup based products and things. Remedy is the one that's most commonly sold by the feed stores, but that will kill stuff, you know, several hundred feet away. If you are, you know, if some of it is back even a relatively small distance away from your water supply, I think you'd be perfectly safe to do what I do on mesquite and weed hatch and things like that, and that is make that mixture of uh, diesel and molasses 50-50, and just after you cut things off, you douse the stump with that very good. You're not just spraying it. You're actually pouring a little bit over it to... uh, and in this, the, the diesel effectively kills it. The molasses, the microbes that it stimulates go to work to clean it up so it does not leave.
leave any harmful residue behind in the soil. Like I say, I wouldn't do that right up at the water's edge, and there is a you know a danger that you'll get a little bit of contamination from the diesel. But uh, the petroleum products are. Uh, you know, they're, they're hydrocarbons. They're things that are basically carbon and hydrogen, and they are broken down. They do not leave any long-lasting residues. And like I say, by adding some molasses to it, uh, you're supporting the microbes that will totally clean it up. So that would be the, you know, that that would be the last thing I would consider doing. I certainly, like I say, I would never, never go with Remedy or any of those strong brush color killers because they will move and they'll kill a lot of things that you didn't intend. Uh, the diesel molasses mix, very, very effective. And I find that one application is usually enough to kill things out, but try to stay just as far back away from uh, from your creeks and all as you can with that. And is that a 50-50 mix? Yeah. That's what I do. You you go a little lighter on the molasses if you wanted to. Now, uh, the other option, and I you know I, I don't know what the terrain is like, but you can physically rip these things out of the ground if you want to talk to somebody about doing it for you. Call uh, Stan Hagener, the guy we call the Cedar Eater of Texas. Right. He has a machine. It's called the Grubber. And the right. thing they use it mostly for is getting mesquite out of the ground. And this thing literally wraps around a trunk and rips it out of the ground, roots and all. And uh, that, you know, there are disadvantages to that because you're loosening the soil. If we get a big rain, of course, uh, erosion is always consideration. If I were going to do that, I'd think about coming in with a winter grass, be it uh, oats or rye or, um, you know, whatever, to stabilize that soil as much as possible. But that is the other, you know, way of doing it. And you'd end up with some smaller plants left behind that you'd have to use other measures for. But, you know, Japlogustrum, uh, biggest ones I've ever seen had trunks that were 12 or 15 inches in diameter. And so... Right. um for kind of a one-and-done deal, if it fits in the budget and, uh, um, you know, and if the land – Stan works in pretty rugged terrain doing all sorts of different things, but if it's if these are along an area that a four-wheeled vehicle can get to, um, and believe me, they, they get over some pretty rough terrain, uh, the grubber would be would be probably the most environmentally friendly way to do that and it would be very, very effective. It just would be a little bit more costly than the other things we've talked about. Right, right. But at the very um, least, while you're making up your mind what to do, you know, long-term about it, uh, those berries are going to be falling. They're going to be eaten by the birds, and I would get after that as soon as you possibly can. And if we're on my ranch, I would just pile them up, let them dry for a week, and then burn them. But uh, this right. is the time of year that there will be tens of potentially tens of thousands of new plants um, wanting to come up from those berries. So start out by getting rid of the berries and then figure out how to get rid of the of the plants that are producing them. Right, right. Um, we've got other areas that I don't know if it's uh, steel grass or wool grass that's choking off uh, creeks down to a pretty uh, skinny channel. Is it, The only thing you can do there is to dig it out. That's the only thing that really is environmentally safe if you can, uh, you know, one thing you can do, and it'll work, it'll work on small augustrums, just not the big ones, if you uh, can put some goats on the area. 
Um, they, you know, they will eat down and take care of a lot of vegetation, and and that should work. That should work on those as well. Right. Right. I don't like and, goats. And- I don't like sheep long term. But as sort of a flash grazing kind of thing, they sure do. They sure do keep a lot of undergrowth down and can get rid of some of the noxious stuff that's growing this time of year. Right. And same thing for bamboo. Only thing you can do is dig it out. Yes, but the bamboo, the nice thing about the bamboo is it doesn't sprout back from the roots. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's that little rhizome that is what all the growth is coming up from is never more than an inch or two below the surface of the soil. So on that stuff, if you've got a skid steer and, you know, if you're down in a real moist area, you know, get one of them that's running on tracks rather than on tires. But if you can cut an inch, inch and a half, two inches down into the soil and literally just, uh, you know, push it over, push it up where you can pile it and you don't even have to burn it if you don't want to i probably would burn it but uh bamboo is is one of the easier things to get rid of even though it's one of the most prominent most invasive things you will see around um the other you know option and i guess this would actually be worth considering um and i don't know exactly what your terrain is there but if you uh um, you know, if you cut your legustrum down pretty low and uh, let it, you know, let it come back up. If you've got grasses around, if you've got any fuel, you could talk to one of the control burned experts about, you know, actually burning a, a bottom area like that. And um, I don't know. I've, I've never, never tried using fire as a legustrum control but uh that's a possibility as well but again uh control burns are not do-it-yourself projects they're things you want the pros helping you with and it would be worth a call to uh you know to somebody that knows control burning to see if that uh offers you any solution that certainly would be one of the most inexpensive ways uh to tackle that problem and you know, minimally damaging to the environment because before man came in and, you know, cut down on all the fires, we didn't have the cedar problems. We didn't have a lot of the other invasive species problems that we do now because fires periodically swept across the area and it was just, you know, part of the ecology of the land. So uh, I would put that in the mix of possibilities while you're looking at how to solve this problem. That sounds good. Uh, We'll take a look into that and I appreciate your help. Well, it's always a pleasure. I would love to hear back from you on what you decide on and uh, and love to kind of follow this and uh, and see, you know, see what is most successful for you. Because believe me, there are a lot of other people out there that can benefit uh, from your experiences. I tell you one other place that you might turn to for help. Uh, the Hill Country Alliance. Well, uh, two other places that I will tell you about the Hill Country Alliance. Uh, is uh, is an organization which does an awful lot to uh, you know to help preserve and restore our hill country land. You might go to their website. You want to get in touch with Charlie Flatten is probably the fellow who will point you to the experts that could help you on in their organization with advice and all. And the other thing you might do is uh, talk to the Cibolo Nature Center up in Bernie. Um, they they have done a number of control burns on their prairie area extremely successfully. And uh, one of their ecologists that you can ask for up there is a lady named Donna Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, 
one of the neatest ladies I've ever known in my life. That she just lives and breathes land and land protection and preservation and is uh, extremely knowledgeable in there. So those will be two other resources. I'd, I'd talk to Charlie at Hill Country Alliance and see if they have anybody on their staff or membership that uh, has taken on this problem and uh, uh, give Donna a call up at Civil O Nature Center. You'll find her to be a just a really delightful person and extremely knowledgeable. Uh, one other person, and uh, I know he does consulting for hire. Unfortunately, he's not a he's not paid by our taxes anymore. But uh, Rufus Stevens uh, has been with Texas Parks and Wildlife for many many years. He was actually district leader. He retired last year, and he's doing uh, some uh, consulting for a very reasonable rate. But uh, Rufus is another person you could reach out to and find out if it's if it's worth your time to pay him to visit and advise. But I know I'd love to give you some free help over the phone, so uh, uh, you can probably Google him, and it's uh, um, Rufus Stevens would just be those those three people: Charlie at Hill Country Alliance, Donna at uh, Civil O uh, Nature Center, and uh, Rufus would be would be three of the best. I can tell you others: Patty, Leslie, Pastor, and others that make a business out of this. But those are three folks that I would reach out to. Uh, to uh, find out who they know that has uh, dealt with the same issue and, and find out what's uh, what has been most effective. Like I say, though, I'd, I'd sure stay away from the uh, chemical brush killers. I, I think you're just inviting all kinds of trouble there. Right. Uh, I'll do my holler, but we'll start cutting on the olivestrum. Yeah, yeah. Good. Pile and burn on those berries, and, <laughs> and it's going to be nice weather for doing a little burning. I've uh, I've I've had a bit of that that I've been doing as well, and it's it sure is a good time of year. And with all the moisture out there, it's about the safest time we could possibly be doing it. So, Frank, get back with me. Let me know what you learn, and uh, we'll all benefit from your experience. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. So, uh, good morning, Eva. Good morning. Good morning to you. I have two really different types of questions. First okay. question is, uh, uh, daughter-in-law gave me a beautiful uh, orchid for for Christmas. Okay. But I've never been able to take care of an orchid at all. And it's called an ice orchid, whatever that means. So, it's beautiful right now. Okay. But I don't know what I should do with it, you know, other than give it a, a couple of pieces of ice once, once, <laughs> okay. once a week or something. And this is the one that has uh, kind of broad, flat leaves and has a big spike of flowers coming up? Yes. Okay, yeah. Moth orchid is one common name. You'll also hear them called Phalaenopsis. Uh, but um, they're actually, they are one of the orchids that you can be successful with indoors that should grow well and will even periodically rebloom for you. And two or three secrets. Um, one, of course, is bright light. Uh, in your home, it would be impossible to give it too much light. A south window or a west window, uh, inside, the, the more light you can get, even even some direct sunlight is fine. But that's rule number one. Uh, number two, I'm not into watering with ice. I mean, you can do that, but a far better way uh, to water that plant, and I suspect this is, what, in about a little four-inch plastic pot? Yeah, yeah, four inches at the top, a little less. 
Yeah. Right at the bottom. Well, just uh, best way to water it is just going to be to set it in the sink, turn the water on slowly, and just really, really soak it good. Uh, as I always like to tell people, there's no such thing as overwatering, but you can water too often. The secret with your orchid, like many other things, is when you water it, really water it thoroughly, like there's a real giant storm moving through the jungle, but then let it go until it's dry on the surface. Now, the moth orchids don't have water storage organs like some other kinds of orchids do, so you never want to let it get bone dry when it's uh, you know good and dry up on top. It's time to give it another thorough watering this is probably going to be about every five or six days this time of year and every couple of weeks if you mix up a little liquid fertilizer like has to grow or like one of the espoma liquids or something like that or fox farms um they would really appreciate a little nutrition as well so feed it every two or three weeks just substitute a watering with fertilizer in it for just using plain water and uh, here are a couple of things about the blooming. Those flower spikes, eventually the blooms, of course, will dry and fall off. Now, you want to keep it out of any, you don't want any real hot drafts blowing on it. Orchids don't like ceiling fans. They don't like to sit right in front of a heat vent. But other than that, those blooms should last, oh, maybe six weeks or so, and you probably have more buds that will open. So they can stay in bloom for two or three months at a time. When they have finished blooming, it would be a good time to repot because most likely it's growing in this sphagnum moss. That's how most of these orchids actually come out of China, and they start them off growing in this sphagnum moss. Long term, they will be much easier to grow in a fir bark mix, but um, you don't have to do that right now. In fact, I wouldn't do it until they are finished blooming. And then you can call me or whatever, and uh, I'll walk you through the process of uh, repotting it into a bark mix. But for right now, just enjoy it. Keep it in a really bright place. Water it properly, a little fertilizer now and then, and um, it should stay pretty for for months for you. In fact, when the existing flowers fall off, a lot of times those green bloom spikes will put out a branch from further down below where the flowers were and put on additional buds and flowers. I had a friend who had uh, a bigger plant of a phalaenopsis, a moth orchid, growing in a hanging basket, and I think he said it went for seven years without always having either buds or blooms on it so they are wonderful plants and i know you're a good gardener with other things so i think you're going to find this phalaenopsis is not going to be that much of a challenge uh, for you to grow well okay thank you very much and the other question now is it's really kind of strange but i don't know how else to put it i got a rose thorn in my finger last february uh-huh and it has never healed since then i've never seen the thorn come out but the doctor says it's not in there anymore that it's a poison from the rose so i was trying to do it with cornmeal but i don't know what to do no the cornmeal's not going to help you on that i'll tell you what would in my what i would be doing that would most likely help is uh do you have a comfrey plant c-o-m-f-r-e-y no, I don't. I keep thinking I'll get one, and I haven't gotten one. <laughs> well, this would be a good day to go to a nursery that has uh, the herbs and uh, get... Uh, you might be able to go to a health food store like Rhonda's Nature's Way or something like that. You might be able to find comfrey in a dried form or even as a cream or something, but I just take and just squeeze the juice. I'll just, you know, pick a leaf or sometimes just part of a leaf, squeeze it real hard, get the juice and rub over that area. 
it seems to the method that what it seems to do is uh, stimulate circulation and it will help in in wound healing probably better than anything even better than aloe vera in my experience and of course it's totally safe so i'd uh, i'd look for some comfrey i would be dabbing a bit on the that on there just on a daily basis and uh it you know <laughs> if it were me i don't you know i'm not real scientific i just kind of crush that stem and rub it all over the place and it may get a little green may get a little chlorophyll on there but if anything will get the tissue regenerating where you where you had that thorn uh, that is what i would sure try okay well i've been working with this for be a year in February, and it hasn't gotten any better. Well, and thank goodness. And it looks like it's getting better, but it's not getting better. It hurts. Well, it's, um, yeah, you've obviously got an irritated nerve there. It, it's not infected. I mean, you would have seen you would have seen things long before now if you had an infection going in there, so I don't think that's the issue. But see if you can get some comfrey, and like I say, try that on a daily basis. I'd be willing to bet you then uh, within a couple of weeks you're going to start seeing some relief from it. Is that C-O-M-F-R-E-E? F-R-E-Y. C-O-M-F-R-E-Y. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And it's a pretty plant. Um, you know, it's uh, mine has stayed green. It it stays evergreen unless we get down into the low teens. And uh, it's just it's wonderful stuff to have because it will take the pain out of a wasp sting or a scorpion sting. It'll take the itch out of a fire ant bite. I just considered it an essential to have in the garden, so uh, it did be a good time to uh, invest in some. And uh, back to the orchid, I will give you one warning about growing orchids is that they are highly addictive because everybody Uh-oh. thinks they're hard to grow. And once you grow one successfully, well, then it'll be two, then it'll be three. Personally, I started growing them as a science fair project in the eighth grade. By the time I got out of high school, I had about 300 plants. By the time I got out of college, I had about 3,000 plants. So just warning you, it's the, the only danger in successfully growing an orchid is that it will uh, make you want to grow more. I'll tell you one other story since I don't have a lot of callers lined up, and that is the uh, gentleman, uh, doctor friend, uh, lived around the corner from my grandparents up in Dallas, and he's one of the guys that is responsible for my personal addiction. But the first time I went went to see him he had built his wife a nice greenhouse in the backyard for her african violets and over in the corner of the greenhouse he had one table where he had a handful of orchids when i went back to see him the next christmas uh the greenhouse was full of orchids the wife's african violets were inside on a plant stand when i went back the following year he had two greenhouses instead of one all full of orchids the third year it was three greenhouses full and about two years later he moved further out on the edge of town on acreage so that he could put up a greenhouse that was uh i think about 20 feet by 80 feet or something like that so just one of those things you get started on orchids it can have uh it can have drastic consequences <laughs> but well it's not- i'm not physically able to do too much so i don't think i'll be doing that <laughs> well i'll tell you one thing though orchid growers tend to be long-lived healthy people uh a good friend of mine over in hawaii made it i think to 95 i had a friend up in upstate new york rodney wilcox jones i think he was 108 when he passed away and uh, these orchid growers they just can't wait for the next bloom and they're they're damn sure they're going to live to see those flowers so uh i, I hope it gets you off uh started on a good hobby Eva, because they're not that difficult to grow and even in uh, even in a bright window in your home you should be very successful with them 
Okay, thank you. Another one thing, I have a Christmas cactus that we're doing really well, but I had to bring them in because it's getting really cold, and right. now they're losing all their blooms. Um, that's really kind of natural. Keep them in the sunniest window you can. Uh, they just, they don't really like going from the pretty humid atmosphere outside, inside where things are so much drier. But if you keep them in a bright window, the blooms will last somewhat longer. And, uh, if you have any of them in small pots, you can take a tray, like an old cafeteria tray or a baking dish or something like that, fill it with, uh, gravel and you don't want the, the, christmas cacti actually sitting down in the water but you can have a basically a dish full of water which is evaporating all the time and creating more humidity set your plants on top of that and they will last longer but i think the main thing with your christmas cactus is uh bring it uh where you can keep it in a sunnier window and the blooms will last for longer yeah okay all righty thank you very much and have a pleasant day and you do the same in a very happy, happy new year happy new year <laughs> thank you Evan. <laughs> We'll talk again. Okay, bye. All right, back to gardening, and uh, I think the world's waking up one person at a time. Now it's Pat. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I had to have just a little list here, and generally when I put things on my list, one of your callers answers it, but this time I have a few extra things that are well, kind of off the wall for Saturday morning. We've, we've got time this morning, so I look forward to discussing them with you. Okay. Uh, first thing on the list is um, a, a spray or something to spray on my adeniums to keep them from getting sunburned little tummies there. They get um, they get too much sun. So I, this last year I put aluminum um, foil loosely around the base, and that worked pretty good. But when the wind comes along, it blows them off. So uh, I did see a shade spray on the Internet, but it was so expensive, I thought I'll bet Bob's got another solution. Well, unfortunately, there's not really anything to spray on now. If they get used to it gradually, they should take an awful lot of sun. But by far the best thing to do is just make yourself a little structure or whatever and just, you know, put a little bit of shade cloth over them. I mean, it would be easy to put together with wood or pipe or whatever. And uh, you can get shade cloth very inexpensively and very easily on the Internet through a company called Grower Supply. Or right here in San Antonio, there's a there's a neat company. They're in the northeast part of town called Greenhouses, etc. And Tommy's got shade cloth of all sorts. In fact, he may even have scraps where you know where he would give you a few small little pieces if you just have a small area to do. Another place you could try. Uh, there's a neat place over in the Windcrest area called uh, Bright Ideas. They specialize in hydroponics. But Troy's got some. Uh, many different things over there and he might have a little bit of shade cloth but the those spray on things don't work i mean uh if you were going to do that you could basically make up a little whitewash and paint on them or you could take you know any kind of latex paint and dilute it about 10 to 1 with water and paint it on and that would do as much good as your expensive internet stuff but uh it's it's you know worth it and and just not that difficult i would suggest not real dense shade you have a lot of different choices everything from 30 percent to 85 percent shade and i'd be looking at the lower end the 30 to 40 percent shade would give you all the protection that they needed okay well 
I thought about the shade cloth, but you have to picture all these little adeniums with little skirts on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I I wouldn't do that. I would, uh, you know, maybe if you have a given place just on the west side of them, just create a little vertical upright screen and uh, don't put anything in physical contact with the plant. Just, uh, in effect, create an umbrella for them, but, you know, not a solid one. The thing about shade cloth, the wind goes right through it, so it's not like a big sail. It's going to blow over easily. Uh, it's more or less permanent, um, and uh, that that's just going to be a much better solution than trying to put something on the individual plants. I just don't think that's going to work out well. Okay. Um, then I have um, a mountain laurel <clears throat> that has uh, silver green leaves and stripes on the flowers. It did make a couple of little um, seeds, but they're not looking like the mother trees, so I'm wondering, can I take... Uh, cutting stem cuttings off of those and if so when could i do that off the tree no cuttings will not root on a mountain laurel you could try when we get to hot weather if you want to try air layers you know where you uh you kind of skin one side of a limb right wrap the sagda moss around it and wrap that up with Mm -hmm. foil that probably would work um but uh again you're going to wait for hot weather you're going to wait for june or july to do that okay that's something to try yeah and i you know with growing things from seed um a very small percentage will actually come true uh to the mother plant especially if it's an unusual and we don't know sometimes it's actually genetic sometimes it's actually a virus that causes the variegation could be a number of different things but um to 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 successfully get a seedling that looked like mama plant you might have to grow a hundred or even a thousand seed to get a handful of them that would have that variegation i mean it'd be a great thing to do it would be economically a really good thing if you could get a a stable breeding population so to speak but i think the air layer is going to be your best bet for getting uh new plants that are genetically identical to the mother plant Okay. Well, it doesn't have um, the green leaves. It has um, silver leaves. It's real, real unusual. I bought it up in near Austin several years ago. It almost died, and then it made four little trees. <laughs> so. Um, they're not going to be silver, so I'm wondering if I could do that. So well, it sounds very interesting. I've not seen anything. I've seen the occasional variegated green and white uh Mm -hmm. thing but i've never really seen a silver leaf now recognize that mount laurels the genus sephora s-o-p-h-o-r-a and there are a number of different sephoras there's one called eve's necklace that is very common in the hill country but it drops all of its leaves each year and has a a little bit different flower from the mount laurel so this this could be you know a separate species it may not be you know true mount laurel but be real interesting to see and uh, certainly interesting to try to propagate yeah, okay. Um, I have. We just moved out to um, just uh, south of Bandera, between Hondo and Bandera. Okay. And I don't have I don't have a lot of soil. I'm kind of living on the side of a, a hillside here with just a rock <laughs> slab. A lot so of us can identify with that. Oh, I have to go out there and poke around and see if I can find a hole where there might be some dirt. You know. Um, so I've got several clematis that I brought with me, and they did bloom this last year. But I'm thinking maybe I could put a little raised bed around some of the older um, mountain laurel trees. They, I don't know how old they are. They, they look ancient. Mm-hmm. And uh, just let the clematis grow up the trunks and put the raised bed around the bottom. Um, what do you think about that? 
I think that that would be a good idea. Now, clematis can get so vigorous, and you don't want a vine that's just going to totally shade the mountain laurels. But, of course, the place that the plants are happiest is if they can have uh, their top in the sun, the roots in the shade. We actually have two different native clematis that that grow wild in the hill country, but uh, they I always see them down along creeks or rivers. My business partner has uh, about a 1,000 feet of Guadalupe River frontage on her property, and we see both the... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and she bought it a long time ago when you could still afford to do that sort of thing. But I see both the blue and the red form down there. But uh, uh, like I say, you know, the the only problem, and of course, clematis are deciduous. They're going to drop all those leaves in the winter, but uh, um, they they can become a very vigorous vine. So, uh, again, if you can create a raised bed where you can give them a good deal of soil, and if you can put them, like, say, where the top's in the sun, roots in the shade, I think they have a chance to do them pretty well for you. Yeah, okay. Well, i got to do some. They dry out in the in the pot so quickly, oh, yeah. and I know you have to keep them shaded. Yeah, and so again, not- and, and you've already done the hard work. You figured out which ones will grow in this area. Now, again, in her garden, she has a beautiful white, one of the Jack Manai hybrids, and that thing may have 30 to 40 flowers at a time on it in the spring, pure white that are you know, maybe mm-hmm. three inches in diameter. They're, they are a wonderful plant to grow, but it's sort of finding the right place for them. Yeah, I'll have to get my stick and go poke around in the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and then use that spot to build up even more uh, raised raised right. bed around them. <laughs> uh, I also brought uh, citrus trees with me, and they're they're in pots. They're in uh, 25 or 30-gallon pots. And uh, two of them I want to plant in the ground, the grapefruit, the pink grapefruit, and the, um, I guess it's a tangerine kind of a tree. And they seem to be very hardy. Uh, would this be a good time to do it, or should I wait till spring? I would wait at least a month. You know, you just can't tell what the weather's going to do. And so far we've had, you know, we've had a chilly winter, but not a not a real cold winter. We've had a lot of chilling hours. I've uh, even heard from one friend who has uh, some peaches starting to come into bloom. But we just don't know if we're going to get that really, really hard Arctic blast coming down. So since it's only, you know, 30, 45 days, I'd hold off and plant them a little later. Now, tangerine should be cold hardy in that in your new area. Grapefruit, some varieties seem to be hardy. Some varieties are not as hardy. So if you've had experience with this one and it does seem to stand up to the freezing weather weather better, then, uh, yeah, I think you could put that in the ground. But I'd, I'd be looking for late February, March is a good planting time. Okay. They always seem to be either in bloom or with fruit on them, and that's not a good time. So. <laughs> well, sometimes when you're when you're not disturbing the roots – transplanting or planting doesn't hurt a thing uh and it should the plants basically if you do it right they shouldn't even know they've been transplanted now when you dig when you disturb roots when you transplant rather than just potting them up to a bigger pot or putting them in the ground uh, you can do that anytime uh, whether they're flowers fruit or anything else because basically if you're not busting up the root system that plant doesn't know you've even touched it it just thinks hmm, i seem to have a bigger home to live in let's uh, <laughs> grow some more roots and make some more fruit yeah there you go okay um i have i bought a couple of crepe myrtles to bring out here and um, they're fine as far as the root flare sticking out. I guess the, the nursery people have heard you. <laughs> <laughs> Unusual good thing, though. I know, right? 
um, but there are uh, two or three in each pot. So I, uh, I probably should separate them. That's what I planned on doing. And um, would this be a good time to do that? How They're, big? Well, how big are the individual trunks? Um, the pots are probably um, oh, maybe two gallon, one oh. one to two one to two gallon. They're okay. pretty good size. Yeah. If you want to do that, this would be the best possible time to do it. Now, um, there's nothing wrong with leaving them together. They're not going to crowd each other. Not going to have any problems and i think some of the prettiest crepe myrtles around are the multi-trunk crepe myrtles i don't like a single trunk crepe myrtle because if you get a big windstorm you get a storm and it busts the top out of it you've got nothing if you have a plant growing up with six or eight trunks and one of them gets broken out for whatever reason you trim it out and you hardly even know it's gone so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not necessarily going to encourage you to separate them but if you want to this would sure be the best time of year to do it and i would basically set that whole bucket uh plant all down in a bucket of water soak it for a couple of hours wash all the soil you can away from the root system with a hose and then get in there and start gently separating the roots uh you know take them apart uh, as best you can do not allow the root system to dry out i mean either cover it with wet burlap or replant it immediately but if you feel like you want to try to separate it yeah this afternoon would be a pretty much perfect time to do that Okay. Well, I waited and waited for, to call about gardenias, and I never, never, I guess, got enough nerve to call. <laughs> but see, it's had, easy. <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. Well, my phone's kind of sketchy, so sometimes I, I lose calls, you know, so that's right. not good. So I did repot um, my gardenias. There was like four in each pot. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if one of them makes it, I'll be okay, because I really only wanted one. Well, don't you know, they're all alive. (laughs) Well, gardenias, you're probably in your new area with limited soil. You're probably going to do best to keep them in pots, um, but just gradually move them up to bigger pots, because they will want to spread the roots out a bit. They like a richer soil than you're going to have, so use that good organic potting soil. But uh, uh, those, unless you're going to create a really big, expansive raised bed, uh, they're going to continue to do better in pots than they would in the ground for you. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, I have uh, several plumerias in my in my little, I call it a greenhouse, it's a shelter mm-hmm. <laughs> that I can close off. And some of them are real, um, they're tall, and i was wondering if I can cut them back at this time of year and then uh, root that cutting. Wait, um, yeah, wait until the new growth is about to begin in the spring. All right, back to gardening. A little more with Pat. And, uh, Pat, the thing on the uh, plumerias is they they really like it hot, and any time you're going to be uh, cutting or anything like that, it's much better to do it in the warm season. You can root the tops, and what you do is just uh, – leave that leave that top section just in fact lying out in the air for a couple of days so that that end calluses over and then they root very easily uh, you can be 100 percent sure of rooting in perlite most of the time they'll root if you just put them down in soil okay well that's good